Most of your basic biological activities involve feedback loops, which allows your body to regulate itself. Now scientists are starting to discover ways to incorporate feedback loops into synthetic materials. So all of a sudden you have this really dynamic process where the light is going in, it's changing the material, and is in turn changed by the material. And a new light-sensitive soft material may one day lead to new computing applications that are done without any electrical circuits at all. But... If you think about new discoveries, you yet don't quite know the applications that they might be used for in the future. With new discoveries, it's not appropriate to think about old applications. On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, soft materials that can guide laser light. I'm Robert Frederick. Your eye contains a feedback loop. Look at a bright light and your iris closes to allow in less light. Turn away from the bright light and your iris opens to allow in more light. It takes photosensitive chemicals, nerves, and muscles to make all that happen. And scientists and engineers have already recreated those kinds of feedback loops into digital cameras using sensors, electricity, computer programming, and motors. But now, a scientific team has created a synthetic material that incorporates a feedback loop in just the material itself. The synthetic material, which kind of looks like raspberry jello, reacts to low-power green laser light. With the laser on, the material changes its internal structure to guide the laser light through that material. The scientists describe it as a kind of self-induced optical fiber. In other words, the laser light, which would normally diverge into the shape of a cone of light, instead passes through the soft material without really diverging at all. So the laser light's shape stays like a cylinder. And then if you turn the laser off, the material reverts back to its original internal structure. The scientific team announcing and publishing the discovery is led by Kale Sarvanamutu at McMaster University in Canada, Anna Balash at the University of Pittsburgh, and Joanna Eisenberg at Harvard University. I spoke with Sarvanamutu and Balash via the internet. Here's our interview, which I started by asking them to introduce themselves. My name is Kala Saravanamuttu. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology at McMaster University. And our research straddles materials, chemistry, polymer chemistry, optical physics. Yes. So um, that's me in terms of my, my research interest. I'm Anna Balazs. I work in the chemical engineering department at the University of Pittsburgh. My expertise is in theoretical and computational modeling of polymeric systems and, and soft matter. How did you all meet one another? I've actually known uh, Anna Balash's work and, and Joanna Eisenberg's work for a long time. I really admired their work as, as soft materials chemists and this idea of configuring some intelligence, some autonomy into soft materials specifically is something that has really interested me for a long time. I met Anna actually at a, a GRC conference on nonlinear oscillations now 12 years ago, and I, and I kind of distinctly remember her. Um, she was very <laughs> kind. Uh, I had just started out as a, as a faculty member, and uh, 
she was extremely gracious, and I and I remember that very well. With Professor Eisenberg at Harvard, that's also an interesting story. When I first started and I was building up my lab, um, I had a, a very young undergraduate student come to me. Uh, his name is um, Ian Burgess. And he wanted to do some summer research with me. And it uh, was the beginning of a very productive uh, collaboration with the student. Um, he came back many times as an undergraduate researcher, published papers with me. And then he went on to Harvard um, and was jointly su supervised by Professor Eisenberg. And when I visited him, uh, when he was a, a PhD student there, he pointed out that um, that group was working on this really interesting photoresponsive material, this hydrogel system. And he thought that some of the work that we did with nonlinear waves, nonlinear light waves, could be maybe studied in those systems. And that's how the the connection began with this undergraduate student at that time, well, a PhD student realizing that maybe there's this interesting connection. And from that point on, we've had um, exchanges of students traveling between the groups. And so the, the early experimental work really was um, the Harvard lab uh, mailing out samples to us. Uh, we doing the optical experiments here and then Anna providing that critical link of the theoretical framework on trying to understand these really extraordinary results. So that's that's kind of the story of how we met. And then recently, Anna uh, visited uh, McMaster. And so I, I was finally able to meet her again after about 12 years I think, <laughs> in person. But in retrospect, it's been a very natural evolution of this collaboration. And I think because it's not forced, I think that's one of the reasons why it's um, productive. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I was extremely happy to be involved in this. I've been collaborating with Joanna for quite a while, and she was the one that um, introduced me to um, Kelly's recent work, and we were just amazed by her beautiful results and Joanna's beautiful results, and we really wanted to be involved to try to understand the system. One of the things that I would like to emphasize, kind of following up on that, is that you know this work was really kind of on the shoulders of the of the graduate students and the undergrads and the and the postdocs who did the work because they were the ones who were kind of hands on in the lab having to figure out the the remote communications um, right. between the right. groups and um, I, I think that um, even though uh, Joanna is not uh, present today I think that it was it was really critical um, you know Amos Meeks Ankita Shastri in in the Harvard group Victor Yashin and Anna's and in my group, Furiha um, Mahmoud, Derek Morem, Andy Tran, uh, people who really did the work over the years and trying to get it to this point. I understand this is building on earlier work, and, and I really like that story about how it's been students in some sense and, and mailing packages. I'm just imagining hydrogels going through the mail. <laughs> <laughs> Was there an end goal in mind, or what prompted this latest research? Let me just answer that because I'm going to say some really nice things about Kelly. So Kelly and I have this, this common interest of trying to design materials that compute. So trying to use the inherent properties of materials to do simple computational tasks. And she's recently devised this method. It, it's still very, very, very early days. So we're just saying that we're, we're starting to move along that path. But she's devised this very elegant method um, where we can use hydrogels and polymerization in hydrogels 
to think about how we can use the inherent properties of materials to do simple computational tasks. So again, I want to emphasize this is very early days, but without these kinds of studies, um, it's not possible to make progress along those lines. Yeah, I do understand this is proof of concept. Let's take then those concepts, but I'm just going to read the title of your paper. Optochemical mechanical transduction in photoresponsive gels elicits switchable self-trapped beams with remote interactions. Let's start with the concept of optochemical mechanical transduction. I'll start and I'll let Kelly answer. Sure. Beautiful example in your iris. When there's lots of light that hits your eyeball, then your iris and pupil adjust to accommodate that light. So that's the optical part. Some of that involves chemical interactions in your eyes. So that's the chemical part. And then a lot of it involves refocusing your muscles to, to change the pupils in the iris. So that's the mechanical part. So there's a beautiful example of optochemical mechanical in a biological in a human system. Okay, photoresponsive gels. So these types of photoresponsive gels have been around for a very long time. And there's, you know, especially with the spiropyran system that we studied, these have been studied for an, a very long time. But typically, they have been studied in the context of kind of static responses. What happens to the material when there is incident light and kind of at a steady, under steady state conditions, right? It's This is a system, it's sensitive to light. And that sensitivity originates from some chromophores, uh, molecules that respond in some way to visible light. And it's very much like the eye because at the back of the retina, we actually have an isomerization process that forms the kind of the crux of the, the visual cycle. So what happens in our system is the incident light triggers this uh, chemical transformation, this isomerization of some photochromic molecules, which in turn impacts the matrix, the, the hydrogel itself. Uh, which undergoes what we think is a mechanical transformation. It undergoes, a, to put it simply, a contraction. So then there is this beautiful feedback loop that's established where, you know, the, the incident light initiates the photochemical reaction, which in turn changes the mechanical properties of the matrix. And that in turn, again, influences the propagation of light. So there is this kind of nice reciprocity, this nice interaction with the uh, environment, so with the with the stimulus, which in this case is light. I want to jump over the word switchable because I think people will get that uh, as we discuss the the next concept in here, self-trapped beams. And I I loved in your paper that you used the idea of a self-induced optical fiber. So if you wouldn't mind, one of the two of you explaining what a self-trapped beam is. First of all, I I, I want to make it clear that. Uh, these types of subtrap beams have been studied for many decades. So ever since the laser came out, people, especially physicists and optical engineers, have carried out very elegant studies of what happens to light under conditions where the material is photoresponsive. So essentially, what happens when you launch a light beam into a material that changes in the presence of light? What is different about our system is that it kind of falls into the interest in my group, for example, of moving away from kind of traditional materials that the physicists and the optical engineers have used, so nonlinear optical crystals or photorefractive materials, to 
softer materials, just soft polymer photochemical systems. And so what we find happens is that these photochemical systems, including the um, system that we use for this particular study, produce changes in the refractive index in the presence of light. So when you, when you launch a light beam into this photoresponsive gel, okay, this jello as we'll call it, <laughs> the, the light beam goes in and it's not, it doesn't stay the same. You know, it doesn't simply refract, for example. It elicits changes within that material. So it goes into the material, it triggers this chemical reaction, it triggers a mechanical change in the, in the hydrogel. And so it now encounters a change in the refractive index. And light communicates with the medium primarily through that refractive index. So all of a sudden you have this really dynamic process where the light is going in, it's changing the material, and is in turn changed by the material. Those refractive index changes are now going to prevent the light from broadening as it normally would. So any light beam over a particular distance will diverge. It will become broader. It will lose its intensity. But in a, in a system like this, that tendency to diverge and broaden is strongly suppressed. And what results is a, a channel of high refractive index all along the path of the beam, which stops it from escaping. So it's essentially inducing a channel for itself and becoming entrapped within that channel. And so that channel is essentially an optical waveguide, you know, we call it, which is very similar to an optical fiber. And so that's what happens. It's a the beauty of it is that self-trapping and uh, the related formation of spatial solitons, for example, is a, a universal process. We see it in many, many different photoresponsive systems. And so we exploit that in this study to say, hey, you know, we have a very soft, elegant uh, chemical system that is that requires only uh, visible light, low intensity light, but we can achieve the same effect. So it's switchable means that if you turn the light off, it goes back to being the way that it was. Correct. Okay, so now the last part of the title of your paper, Optochemical Mechanical Transduction in Photoresponsive Gels Elicits Switchable Self-Trapped Beams with Remote Interactions. With remote interactions. So tell me what's going on there. One of the commonalities, you know, how universal self-trap beams are, they, they recur in many different physical systems and many different photophysical systems. And one of their really fascinating properties is the, is the ability to interact with each other. So when you have, for example, two self-trap beams traveling side by side, depending on factors, they can show behaviors like attraction, repulsion, spiraling, and so on. You know, once we understood... Um, how single self-trap beams formed in our photochromic gels, we wanted to also see how they interact with each other. So we began with the most simple configuration. You know, you put another um, self-trap beam uh, by its side and see what happens. And we, you know, we, we found that when they're close enough to each other, they can show the expected uh, behaviors. But what was uh, really surprising to us was that when we separated these beams over distances where you normally wouldn't expect them to see each other. So by that, I mean, you normally wouldn't expect uh, any significant overlap of their optical fields. 
they were still interacting with each other. So, for example, you know, when we had um, two beams simultaneously um, self-trapping, they seemed to kind of inhibit each other. Um, so they wouldn't allow each other to self-trap to the same extent, to become focused to the same extent. So they seemed to be, what was surprising about this was that they seemed to be communicating with each other, even though they were separated over distances where they should not be seeing each other. And that's when we realized, and that's when the theoretical simulations became so important, we, we began to realize that the the hydrogel matrix itself, the polymer matrix itself, was playing a very significant role in those interactions. So even though the, the beams would not be expected to see or interact with each other under usual conditions, the, the matrix itself was serving as some kind of conduit, some kind of kind of medium that allowed these beams to communicate uh, remotely. So that's what the remote interactions piece is about. So this effort to essentially guide light or, or compute with light, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the potential applications. And I don't want a timeline or when this could happen. I know there are early days, but, but just what would this be useful for? <laughs> Kelly, I'll let you answer that one. Okay. Um, thank you, Anna. I, I think I'll also begin uh, by saying, as Anna did early on, by emphasizing that these are very, very early days. And it's important to also distinguish this work from kind of the very well-established work on optical computing, um, where you know, there is a focus on trying to mimic or to uh, compete with in some ways with digital computing. That's, that's not the idea here. Our idea is coming back to this idea of reciprocal uh, responsiveness to a stimulus, the idea that you can have kind of a reciprocity, just like we, you know, with our eyes, with our senses, the way in which we modulate our responses to stimuli. Um, it's this idea of having systems that have that kind of built-in autonomy. The other side of it is that because we understand and because we know about the interactions of self-trap beams. And people have suggested this many years ago. Alan Schneider suggested this, maybe, I can't remember, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, this concept of light guiding light, you know, the, the idea of using self-trap beams and spatial solitons and their interactions to perform um, computational operations. So in an earlier work, in a recent work, uh, we showed that, you know, you could use these types of interactions in uh, soft photopolymer systems to do addition and subtraction with um, binary strings. And that was exciting. But the problem in that, uh, not the problem, but the, well, the, one of the limitations of, of that recent study, uh, which came from our group, was that the system that we were using was not switchable. So we were using, you know, a, a polymerization system that essentially was permanent. It was not reversible. So once we did a single calculation, we essentially have to throw away the computer, if you see what I mean. So what is really mm -hmm. exciting about this system is precisely its switchability. The, the, it, it promises, you know, we've shown that, yes, this system can has this feedback loop. It, it does support self-trap beams. They do show interactions, and not only that, they are able to interact over very long distances. So now this means it opens up really exciting ways to think about that computational aspect, but not computational in the traditional way, 
But let's see what we can do in terms of introducing new types of computational functions. Now, can we do binary arithmetic and subtraction as we did with the photopolymer? But now we have a system that we can do multiple calculations in. Um, we don't have to throw away our computer each time, right? So those are the types of ideas that we are uh, developing. Anna, will you, would you like to add to that? Yeah, sure. That was great. And I think what Kelly made clear is that this is not going to replace standard computers. We're, we're not doing it so that we can replace the laptop on your desk. And the processes are at the moment are very slow. And in fact, if you think about new discoveries, you yet don't quite know the applications that they might be used for in the future. With new discoveries, it's not appropriate to think about old applications. Mm -hmm. So we're not quite sure yet what particular use this might be, but I want to emphasize that it's not going to replace your laptop. And the really important part, the intellectual question that it addresses is what's needed what materials properties are needed so that the material itself with some stimulus can perform a computational task. Mm -hmm. And so that's this whole idea of materials that compute that you're not going to be integrating lots of hard electronics, lots of hard components, but the material itself, like the way this material starts focusing the beam so the properties of the materials itself can be used to do some unique computational task. And it might not be uh, a Boolean task. It, it yeah. might be yeah. a computational task that you have to think of in a slightly different way. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Well, to you both, thank you very much. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. That was Kale Saravanamutu of McMaster University in Canada and Anna Balash of the University of Pittsburgh on the discovery and characterization of light-sensitive hydrogels that can guide laser light. In the May-June 2020 issue of American Scientist magazine, read more about the discovery and online at americanscientist.org, see a short simulation of what's happening inside the hydrogel when the laser turns on and off. It's in the article titled, Channeling Lasers. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. I'm Robert Frederick. Thank you for joining us.